These comp kids are going outside and they're finding new beta. You know, they see different opportunities when they see a hold configuration than what we see because they're like, oh, I could jump for this, paddle off of it and get to that. And then I've just skipped the entire crux of this boulder. And I suspect that these comp kids are gonna revolutionize outdoor climbing as we know it. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's expert analysis episode on tactics as we look back at season two with an expert coach to examine where pros like Jonathan Segrist, Melina Costanza, Matt Fultz, Guy McNamee, and Allison Vest, among others, struggle in their tactics, what they learned, what common threads we can identify, and how that info can help you and me to level up our climbing. That's what these capstone episodes are all about. And today's is a good one, y'all, because we have Chris Hampton joining to decode the pros' secrets. Now, Chris, as y'all know, has been a force in the climbing community for decades now as a climber, coach, writer, podcaster, producer, and a handful of other hyphenates that are as impressive as they are inspiring. Guys, Chris has become a master of tactics and movement and has coached thousands of clients in those areas. And today... He's coaching all of us in this critical and sometimes mysterious and overlooked world of tactics. So I was just recently at the gym climbing with my kiddos, and of course I want to make sure that they're fully protected as they outcrimp me on top rope. And that is where Petzl comes in, y'all. I got my little crushers geared up in Petzl harnesses and helmets, and they have been long before Petzl came aboard as the official gear sponsor here at The Struggle. That is how much I trust their stuff for them as well as myself. I'm really loving their Sirocco helmet, which goes above and beyond the UIAA and CE helmet standards to give an extra level of protection on the top and the side of the helmet. It's a pretty good peace of mind whether you're giving your loved ones a catch or about to try hard on your own proj. Petzl's gotcha. Check out all the great stuff that they make for us climbers at your local gear shop or head over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. So in today's episode, Chris is putting an emphasis on tactics with regard to dialing in our routines so that when we arrive at the project, whether it's the boulders or the crag or the gym, we are ready to send. Good breakfast, shoes and harness already packed in your crag bag, and of course, fuel for the day. My morning tactics, y'all, include dialing in my Fizzy Vantage supplements for that day's needs. One of those supplements that I cannot go without is Endurex. I love this stuff. It's amazing. It works so good. The beetroot extract and the citrulline malate in it have been shown in studies to boost endurance, stamina, and recovery between repeated events. Whether that's a day on the moon board or routes at the red, that faster recovery and stronger endurance allows me to have more high quality goes, and that is awesome. I'm so psyched that Fizzy Vantage is the official climbing nutrition sponsor here at The Struggle, and I am confident it's going to help you guys level up your training and climbing as well. Give it a shot. See what you think. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order over at fizzyvantage.com. And lastly, a quick shout-out to the patrons of The Struggle for helping to keep me well-caffeinated here in the podcast-slash-utility closet. Y'all are the best. If you are not a patron but want to join The Struggle fam and score all sorts of cool perks, swing on over to patreon.com slash show and check it out. All right, it's time, it's time, it's time, it's time, it's time to build power in our tactics episode with Chris Hampton.
Oh man, I'm so psyched. I've, I've been waiting this entire season for us to have this chat and you did not disappoint, Chris, because I'm looking at it right here, man. I've got, you took more notes on this season of the Struggle Climbing Show than I took on this season of the Struggle Climbing Show, which um, is very on brand for you and I love it. So I, I'm excited to get specific, but before we do, let's talk about themes and any kind of through lines, these common themes that you might have picked up as you very thoroughly looked back on season two. You know what? This was really fascinating for me um, and and made this whole process a really valuable thing for me. And that's because as I was going through, I realized that what everyone here is doing are rethinking tactics that used to work for them. You know, whether that's uh, the time they're spending resting or their approach to the crag, finding partners, the creativity they're using, whatever it is, you know, all of those themes cropped up quite a bit this season. But the one major common thread is that all of these climbers are eventually coming around to rethinking methods that have been successful and then improving on them. And the best climbers do that faster than the rest of us, frankly. Um, I did an episode with Jonathan Segrist many years ago that I called um, something like, if it's not broke, fix it anyway, because he's so good at constantly reassessing his approach. And even when it's working, even when he's sending the hard things, he's rethinking it. How can I make this even better? And that's what all these folks are doing. Yeah, man. What an interesting theme to tease out here. Not something that that jumped right out for me. And I'd love to talk about this for a second before we we dig deeper into the rest of the season. Why do you think that is? Why are are certain climbers better at essentially constantly reevaluating or or, you know, to J Star's point there, fixing things that may not be broken? And, you know, how does that differ as we're specifically talking about tactics here? Maybe different than training, for example, or some of the other chapters that we cover. Why do you feel that theme might be the case for tactics? And and how does that apply to non-professionals? Do you, do you think like the weekend warriors out there? Yeah, I think what it what it comes down to is that climbing is really emotional for all of us. We put a lot of our hearts and souls into this thing and for better or for worse, we attach some of our worth to how we're performing. Um and because of that, it's really easy to get trapped tactically. You know, the training side, there's definitely science coming in that's that's making some changes. But the tactical side, I think it comes down to many of us get trapped by our emotions and our egos into any one specific approach or strategy or tactic. And we have to be able to release that that ego and that emotion in order to move on. And the best climbers just happen to be, or, or maybe they're the best climbers because they're so quick to make those changes, make those improvements on their approach and on their strategy. Really cool, man. Love that. That's great. Well, let's use this theme here to dive into some of our case studies. And I think Jonathan Segrist is a perfect place to start because of his his constant, very thoughtful, I think, approach to not only you know, tactically how he's red pointing, but also how he's looking at every other aspect of his climbing and his training and also his willingness to, to, to change it, to your point, to kind of fix it, even if it's not broken. 
we talked a lot about how, you know, he has these seasons where he'll be very focused on his training just in the gym or on a, on a board. And then some seasons where he's really focused, just training outside on rock. And I like that, you know, he's, he's, again, he's constantly assessing and noodling and tweaking. And then he also kind of has this rule that I'd like to get your thoughts on tactically speaking with regard to trying hard. Because the assumption here is that J-Star is just constantly pushing the top end. And of course, he is. I mean, he's climbing stronger than he ever has in his entire life. But he's not always trying limit projects. Let's hear what he had to say here. Climbing at your limit provides a lot of opportunities for growth. And red pointing at your limit is, is a rad experience and it's extremely rewarding. But I also think that if it's all that you're trying to do all the time, then it can, you can totally, you can totally get blown out. And in the end, I actually don't think that it will be the best for your climbing. I think that doing some sub limit routes and having those trips where you're climbing a little bit easier stuff, but you're actually getting to the top frequently and you're moving over different varieties of stone, you know, you're grabbing different grips. You're not like basically going to one area and climbing just one route for weeks at a time. I do think that that has a lot of benefit to climbing as well. I think that like a general framework to go by is like 50-50, you know, half the time's at your absolute limit and the other half is somewhere below it. Yeah, he's one of the smartest and maybe most thoughtful pros out there, in my opinion, um, and is able to really look at the general population and understand a little better than a lot of the other uh, top climbers. So I think this is really great advice. I would add to it that maybe 50-50 isn't a, a solid rule um, that maybe at different times in your climbing career, it should shift. You know, So maybe when you're newer, you're doing 80% volume, 20% projecting or you know, 90-10, something like that. And then as you get better and better or whenever your progress from just doing more things uh, is starting to stall out, then maybe you dive into a project and it gets closer to 50-50 or maybe it swings to 80-20 the other direction for a little while. Um, you know, with, with Jonathan and with a lot of the pros, they get lots of time outside. So 50-50 over a week might mean they spent two days projecting and two days doing volume, but four days total could be two or three months for a weekend warrior. Totally. So we need to think about it more in terms of like long-term um, over several seasons, 50-50. Whereas in one season, it might look more like 80, 20, 70, 30, something like that. But the, the general philosophy of what he's talking about, um, be projecting, learn that process, try something really hard. And then, supplement that with doing more roots. Sending is a skill, period. If, you, if you're never sending, you're going to forget how to send. There, there are tactics, there are mentalities that come along with being fatigued and still pushing through and clipping chains and the process to get there. So you have to be practicing that skill at the same time, whether that's in the gym or outside. Um, Outside is preferable, and I think he talked about that a lot. It's a different game out there, and different things are going to come into play, so do as much of that as you can. And split it up however it fits your life and your motivation. Just be really careful to go back and rethink it and say, am I spending too much time doing this one thing 
Should I be spending a little more time doing the other? Yeah, I'm really glad you made that distinction too about um, kind of the weekend warrior compared to the pro, where, where pros have a ton of time outside in a year. They might have 100 days outside or, or 200 days climbing outside, whereas the weekend warrior might have just a handful, depending on where you live and your personal life and work life and these kinds of things. And, and, and Jonathan actually recognized that too in our interview. He, he said, you know, obviously this is different if you've got a full-time job and a family and you live in a different place. So tactically speaking, I'd love to zero in on this, Chris, where we're looking more specifically at the amateur climber, the weekend warrior, and how to strike that balance. And this, of course, is for people who climb outside. There's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that climb inside. There's guests from season one. Guy McNamee, you know, essentially just climbs inside because he's um, preparing for competitions and that's his style. But talking about Jonathan and, and maybe myself, using myself as a case study here, when you don't have a ton of access to outdoor days, would love to see how that breaks down. And you had a post not too long ago where you um, basically identified that one of the biggest differences between performance levels was the amount of time one could spend outside. I believe the gist of your post was forget the hangboard and, and get outside. And so I'd like to dive into that a little bit more, uh, tactically speaking, when our days outside aren't as high as maybe we would love for them to be, how do we make the most of them? Like I said, sending is a skill. So especially early in your climbing career, do more things. Try really hard not to get trapped by grades and needing to send something hard. That'll come. Um, the more sends you can get under your belt, the better you're going to be at, at sending when it really counts. There is no top pro you can name uh, who's been climbing outside for a number of years that you can go to their scorecards or whatever and they don't have just a massive base underneath mm -hmm. them. You know, maybe they've done a couple of 15 Bs or something, but they've probably done 513 Bs. And that's not an accident. So I think a good rule to keep in mind, and I hate using the word rule, but, but a good idea is to make sure that your warm-ups and your kind of mini projects are all in place and you're, you're sending lots of these things before you set off into a project. I really like trying to balance out a season somewhere between this 50-50 that, that J-Star is suggesting um, and more of a 30% volume, 70% projecting. But that's after many years of going the other direction where it was 80 or 90% volume, 10 or 20% projecting. And it wasn't until I had hundreds of 512s under my belt um, and, you know, over 50 513s that I even touched a 514. So I went heavy on that side and maybe didn't project soon enough. And I think it's easy to err in the opposite direction because numbers are so seductive, right? We want to climb these big grades and you can't do it unless you try the big grades and you absolutely should. But then you've got warm up and cool down time. You can be sending things. And the days when you're tired, the second day on, go send some things. Don't put all of your time into that project. I really like that. I like that emphasis on sending, even if it's, to your point, warm-ups or these mini projects that you can do 
when you're not feeling totally dialed or or maybe just uh, you you know you got to be a good partner and and your buddy's working on something somewhere else you want to find these other things that you can get on and send now i want to see the other side of this coin here uh chris and get your thoughts on that and that's essentially going out to climb things with no intention of sending and matt fultz brought this up in our chat Let, let's hear what he had to say I, I don't mind going to a project just to learn and without that full intention of like going to send, I'm okay with going to learn. And, you know, I don't like keeping track of how many days I've put in on a project. You know, I, feel, I think I've said before, that like, I, I feel like people would think I suck if they knew how much time I, how many days I actually put in on these problems. Yeah, well, first, I, I don't think anybody out there thinks that Matt Fultz sucks at climbing. He's obviously one of the most dominating boulders in the entire world, but um, ever humble, of course, love this guy. And I think also just a really interesting perspective here I want to get your thoughts on, which is this notion of going out and being willing to get on things without the intention to send. And also what he brings up here, which is even maybe not keeping track or through your eyes, tactically speaking, kind of where does that line get drawn? Where is it beneficial to keep track versus maybe not? Yeah, I, I thought this was really fascinating, actually, when I heard him say this. I would say that's a really good approach initially, but then what I would suggest to Matt is like, let's let's examine why you aren't keeping track of those days. What is it about spending more days on a thing that makes you not want to keep track of it? Because if you were keeping track, that's a great performance metric, you know, down the road, long term, two years from now, we can look back and say, okay, this V14 took me this many days, or all my V14s in 2020 took me this many days, but my V14s in 2023 are only taking me this many days on average. So by that measure, I'm progressing. And, and for my money, that's a more, that's a healthier, more holistic way to look at progression than just Oh, I did V15. Now I need to do V16. So I really like the idea of not attaching your ego and your worth to how many days it is. And if that means not keeping track, then great, you should do that. But if you can, if you can keep track of them without attaching your ego or your worth, then I think it does become a good metric down the road to look at. But, but I agree with Matt. He's at the top of his game, you know, top of the game in general, one of the best boulders on the planet. And it would be really easy to get discouraged looking at lots of days. Instead, he just stays psyched on the thing for as long as it takes. And, and that's how he gets things done. So he knows what's working for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, to, to bring it more general then to, to, again, kind of the weekend warriors and how we might be able to apply um, some level of tracking versus some level of maybe not giving a shit about tracking and just trying to keep that stoke high. This can, you can elevate her out here from the specificity of what Matt was talking about there, days on a project mm -hmm. to any number of things that could be measured. And what do you recommend to your clients? What do you do yourself with regard to how you measure performance on a crag day. Measuring performance in the gym is a totally different thing. And you're actually doing a great series right now, your comeback series about a lot of these, you know, measurements and training and, and how it's coming back. So I, I would definitely point everybody who's who's interested in kind of the training side of, of the tactics here to 
to to check out what you've been doing there. But on the Crag Days, a slightly different level of of measuring. And I've got some friends who log every single attempt with notes. And mm-hmm. I've got, you know, some who are just like, God, I don't remember if I ever was on this project or not. And they'll get on it and they'll get up to the fifth bolt and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that Waco. You know, so there's a huge spectrum there on Weekend Warriors. And I'm curious what you feel maybe are, if if somebody doesn't have a, a system in mind, what would you recommend? What are kind of the the must-haves or the nice-to-haves with regard to tracking outdoor climbing performance and progress? Well, I'll, you just reminded me of a, a little rule I made for myself years ago when I was first climbing uh, around the 512 range that I think is a really good rule to follow for folks, at least for a while. And that's that I would, I would try to onsite things. And every day out, I would try to onsite something. And if I say I onsited a 12A, that meant that I could jump ahead three grades and I could then have uh, a feel on a 12D. And if I onsited two 12As, I could try the 12D, 12D again. And once I onsited three 12As, that meant I could have a 12D project. Hmm. And I could spend as much time on it as I wanted. And then once I onsited three 12Bs, I could go have a 13A project. So I followed that all the way up until it's you know forced conclusion in the red, where it was like, I don't have any more 13Cs to project and I don't have any 13As to onsite left, you know, so I'm kind of stuck now. But I think that's a really great great way to get your sins in and get your time projecting in and, and make sure that you're mixing it up. Um, and after the onsite, after the flash attempt, maybe you count to two, three, four tries. After that, it becomes more about learning the process um, learning to stick with it, and also learning when to quit because I think that's an important strategy as well. Learning when to come back another time or bail on it altogether. But that sort of rule, the on-site one, you get to feel. On-site two, you get another feel. On-site three, you get it as a project um, with with a three-letter grade jump. For me, that worked great. And I've seen it work great for several of my clients to follow that rule and it it feels like great progression. You just need a you need a large number of routes to choose from, and not everybody has that. And then similar, I mean, this could be carried over into the Boulder Gym or to the blocks outside, where you know, for me, if if I am on siting a V two, then maybe I could go project a V four or a V five. Would it carry right. over similarly in that manner? Yeah, I think so. Just like I said, just to make sure you're getting a mix of you're still sending things. And you're trying hard on those sins. They're not super easy for you on sites because those are going to happen very quickly. And then the projects aren't going to be that hard for you. But when you're bumping up against the, you know, a tough flash for you, then three grades or two V grades above that is going to be a, at least a good mini project for you. That's going to take you eight, 10, 12 tries. Um, so you're getting a good mix of required effort level and different types of climbing. So I think it's exactly what Jonathan and Matt are talking about doing. Yeah, I'd love to stay on this on-site slash flash idea here, because I, I do think that there's a skill to that. Certainly, there's a lot of tactics that that can play into uh, flashing and on-siting. And it's something that I don't personally put a whole lot of emphasis on myself. I feel like I should 
get out there and actually really try hard to on-site and flash. And so that's something that I personally want to work on. And uh, in talking with Guy McNamee, this came up because as a competition climber, as you go out to hit the boulders or hit the sport problems, you're trying to flash, you're trying to on-site. And in the sport climbing comp uh, world, he was talking about how he can go out there for the preview time. You get a finite amount of time to take a look at a route and absorb as much as you can. And then, of course, you got to go out there and you, you need to try to give it a flash. And so how can that translate over to what we're doing? Uh, let's hear what he had to say. Let's hear what's worked for him. And then I would love to get your thoughts on this. It was too much for me to like try to keep all that information, like 40 hooks in my head. That was not that important. And I guess the climbing is quite instinctual. So you're not really thinking that much about what you're doing. So the first two minutes we look at the wheel, just kind of basically getting an idea of like where the holds are and like what the moves are very quickly. And then the next two minutes we look at the sipping positions and the resting positions throughout the whole wheel. And then the last two minutes we kind of, we look at the cracks and the points that maybe we didn't quite have time to fully understand. Yeah, I'm going to key in on one thing that he said that I think really hit on something that the best on-site climbers do. And and frankly, this can carry over really well to second or third attempts um, and, and some, some of the projecting process. And that's that he understands that he doesn't have to remember the entire route. Um, you know, I hear people sometimes say, I'm, I don't think I can send it in real life until I can go through every single move in my head. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that on any route I've ever done. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's because I distinguish, and I see lots of climbers do this naturally, distinguish between the parts you have to remember and the parts that you are going to climb on intuition the same way every time without fail. We all have our preferred style, this, this flow that we get into. And when we encounter a sequence, we're going to climb it the same way every time if we're letting our int intuition take over. So when Guy is climbing and, and when he's previewing this route, he knows, oh, that section, I, I see how to do that. I'm going to just be able to climb that. that I'm not going to worry about that. It might be challenging, but I'm going to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. That section looks a little confusing. Or if you're on something for the first time, and you get to a section that's a little confusing, this is, a, this is the time when you need to remember. Find a way to cue for yourself. You know, you can ask your belayer, when I get to the fourth bolt, tell me this is that spot where I want to step through with my right foot instead of being square like I want to be. And, and you have those little cues, these little tags that you pull on for that specific move or that specific sequence, and then you click back into intuition, and you're back to climbing. I think that's a really undervalued skill. And, and he really hit on it with the way he previews routes and his decision to not need to remember everything about the route. He's trusting his skills, all these, all these skills he spent years cultivating. He trusts them and knows I'm going to go up there in that section. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. And obviously, as, as you said, that's that's a skill that gets honed over time. And in Guy's case, um, maybe even more acutely because he has a finite amount of time to preview a route. Whereas for the rest of us, whether we're inside or outside, we could just lay there forever and and take a look at it. So it's a, it's a skill that needs to be built 
Uh, and I love that about flash attempts, uh, or really that's kind of more like trying to on-site because on the, on the other side of this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is Mo Beck. And um, I mean, Mo's just the best. She's obviously a very talented comp climber, so she brings a lot of those skills, but also she's a very talented sport climber and alpine climber. And we spoke specifically about this, this notion of beta and using other people's beta for a route. And of course, Mo is a unique example here. I think she's got a negative 13 ape. She only climbs with, she's got one hand. So, you know, it's a totally different way to climb, right? Typically. And so we talked about um, you know, using YouTube or, or trying to find uh, other people's beta when working on a project. And let's hear what she had to say there and then see how it might apply or not apply to uh, the rest of us as we're looking to, to start in on our projects. Indoor, I look at a route and I've been climbing indoors for years now, a long time. And I, I can look at a route and be like, okay, here's how they want you to climb it. And I have to make a choice, especially like Usually in cruxes, sometimes I have my own cruxes and I have to make a decision. And the hardest part for me is the mental part of do I do it the intended way or do I have to do my own weird, different beta? And oftentimes when I punt on a route indoors, it's because I chose wrong. And as soon mm. as I get back on and do it the other way, that's I'm like, OK, well, that was that was the choice. Outdoors is less black and white, right? Like there's no intended way. I never research a route, I guess. Like, I've never been like, oh, I'm going to project this. Let me YouTube and see what other people do. That, like, that's actually never occurred to me. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, I love Mo, first off. And totally. she's just got a different set of constraints than the vast majority of climbers, you know? Um, but I think what it comes down to, if we boil it all the way down, is that climbing is a game of constant compensation. For, for every single one of us, we're going to do things the way that best fit us, whether that means it's totally different than the beta someone else has done, you know? For most of us, those shifts are going to be small. For Mo, obviously, that's going to be a big shift, a big beta difference, you know? So I think what we can all learn from that is to continue looking for better options. Don't just say, oh, this is the way to do it, so that's how I do it. Um, we have to try to be creative, and creativity came up so much throughout this season, and I think in, in Mo's case, it's really highlighted because she's got this wildly different constraint than the rest of us, and she's compensating in an entirely different way when she's climbing, so she has to be creative for every single move. She doesn't get to do anything uh, the way that everyone else does it. So what we can learn from that is to keep looking for other options. And and I would say this would, you know, not only a tactical thing while performing, but in training, we should also be doing the same thing so that when we get outside, we have a wider set of opportunities available to us with any hold orientation. Great. And, and how would we train that? I would I would do a boulder maybe the way it was intended or the way that it that I would initially do it, you know, my my intuitive way, but then I would try it another way. I would come up with new sequences. I would skip a hold here and there, um, not use a, a foot that's key for me, 
find new ways to do things. I do this outside a lot as well. Just keep finding new sequences and ways to do things because then it it just allows me to see more opportunities anytime I walk up to a boulder or a root or a, a sequence in general. And actually, I think Mo has a, a really like a leg up here in that she has to do that so often. She's probably really good at finding other solutions. Yeah, I really like that. I like I like even that notion of just doing it at the Boulder Gym, and and because it's it's working a mental muscle as as, as much as it's working anything else. You're totally. telling yourself that you can edit out moves, or you can do step throughs instead of neutral, and and all of a sudden it might just unlock something. So that's really great. Yeah, dig that as as a tactic both in the gym as well as outside. Yeah, I, I also want to say there. You know, there there is a time to stop looking for other options, um, and I think that's a practiced thing. You know, um, we can go way too deep and just always continue looking for better beta. So I think over time, you just have to start to learn this is what is going to work for me, and now I move on to the next sequence, uh, or to the next boulder, to the next route, whatever it is. Instead of just constantly looking for more or better options. Yeah, that's a really good point. One that, to your point, probably just comes with with a, enough experience where you build that up. But you know, the irony for for me on Jesus Wept was the first way I tried that upper crux, I deemed it impossible, and so then I tried, mm-hmm. you know, ten different ways. Three of them probably were workable and then seven of them were insane you know like jumping for the mono and like just like such stupid (laughs) stuff because i had deemed my the first one i had tried impossible and then cut to you know it gets 20 degrees cooler and i go up there and i try it the Mm. first way i had done it and i was like oh yeah actually i can lock off on this and step through and do it and it worked and so you know ultimately it was something that i had um disregarded early on because it just felt too hard and a decent amount of that was the conditions but also maybe i just wasn't quite fit enough or i wasn't mentally comfortable being up that high or whatever it was and then you Mm -hmm. know i wasted sessions trying other betas so i think you're right the pendulum can swing maybe too far the other way as well yeah i actually think that's not a waste at all i think it's a a great learning opportunity and you're highlighting a, a thing that we didn't talk about at all which is Having more opportunities available to you and being able to see all the different opportunities is really valuable when conditions are changing or you're fatigued or it's late in the season and your power's disappearing, but you've got tons of endurance. And so, like I said, it's a game of constant compensation. So we're constantly reworking things to fit what we're good at that day, what the conditions are. And if you have more options available to you, you're far more likely to do more things. Yeah, let's stay on this theme of conditions for a second here, uh, because this came up a little bit throughout the season. Uh, Matt Fultz uh, in in his chat really come to mind here because he specifically talked about working some of the hardest boulder problems in the world in suboptimal conditions like Grand Illusion and, and Sleepwalker, where it was humid and he's you know out there at nighttime with the fan on but also working on it when it was you know again not ideal send conditions but let's hear what he had to say about that i do think there is a benefit to trying problems especially long-term projects in uh not ideal conditions 
you know, not always. If I could have my way, it would be incredible conditions all the time. But I think there are still lessons to learn and and uh, things to glean from trying problems when they're not ready. Yeah, I, I loved that he he said this, and I agree with him totally. And I think Mo said something similar, mm-hmm. um, where it's like, I'll I'm happy to go out and learn the moves when the conditions aren't great. Um, I think that's missed so often by so many people, and then we. We go out to the thing we really want to do on the first really perfect day, and we haven't been there yet this season, and then we don't remember how to do any of the moves. We feel clunky moving on rock, and we've just, for all intents and purposes, wasted this perfect day because we weren't really prepared for it. So I'm a big fan of going out and working out moves, getting yourself into a pretty good position um, to send or to be making big links when the conditions do arrive. I also think there's a a part of this that ties back to what J-Star was saying in terms of this is a great time to do your sending of things that are below your limit, your second tier climbs, the um, you know, a few letter grades or a few V grades below your top level. When conditions aren't great, go get some sending in. Exercise that muscle. Get that skill really prepped and ready for when the good day shows up. And then you're far more primed to take advantage of those good conditions. I see this in the Red River Gorge a lot where nobody climbs during the summer. But when the good conditions arrive and you haven't climbed outside all summer long for, you know, you haven't been outside for six months, you're going to show up on the first good days and it's going to take you a week and a half to get back to moving well on, on real rock and then those good conditions have disappeared for the second Red River Gorge summer, which, you know, happens every year. And then you're going to have to wait until the next good conditions three weeks later or whatever it's going to end up being. So, yes, we should think about conditions when it's top performance. If, if you're in position to perform at your top level and you've got something hard you want to do, absolutely try to line it up with conditions. The other times, they, they're not going to matter as much. Yeah, I feel you're just talking right to me right now, man. I I totally blew my tactics this past fall. I I feel like because I guess this is more similar to what Matt was saying than J Star, because Matt's talking about hey, you know, he's willing to go out and get on the limit project even in suboptimal conditions, whereas J Star and and what you were just touching on is you know let's make sure we're getting outside still even if the conditions aren't great, but maybe you're you're getting on projects that aren't quite at your limit. And both of those things, I think, totally have value. One of the things I did this past fall was a lot of the latter. Like, the conditions weren't great, so I avoided the limit project for so long that when conditions finally turned good, I I hadn't even been on a project yet. I had all these 13 A's in my mind that I was going to get on, and then conditions turned good. And so then I got on them and I was like, oh God, I haven't figured out any of these moves. And this one's 120 feet long or this one I thought was going to be good, but it's got to stop or move that I don't think I can sort out in the time that I had. And so I think I kind of personally, I just kind of blew it by not getting on what ultimately could have been the big fall project uh, sooner and feeling that out. And I think what Matt was saying there really 
resonated with me going forward. I, I feel like I do need to maybe do a little bit more of that, even again, without the intention of sending, but just with the intention of um, being ready to send when the conditions turn good. And, and there always will be. You'll, you'll always need to be rethinking it. Um, you know, one of the things that might sound a little strange when I say it about Matt and his situation is that he has very limited options in any boulder field mm. that he goes to. Um, in the opposite direction that most of us do. Right. Like he's going to do all of the V12, V13, V14 quickly. And then he's just left with the two really hard things in the boulder field. Um, so number one, what else is he going to climb on, uh, even if the conditions aren't great? So why not be ready? You sure. know. Plus, he's also got such a wealth of climbing outside, and I'm sure it takes him no time to transition from I've been climbing on a board for a month to now I'm, I'm climbing outside. You know, it takes him a session and he's back to top form. So not all of us have that. So we have to play the game a little bit differently and make sure we're also getting in some sins. Um, you know, the thing he was trying in particular, uh, the, oh, what's the name of it? The big roof in Little Cottonwood. It was that uh, Grand, Grand Illusion? Illusion? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That thing is like, it's got a, a V10 at the lip, and then there's like a V12 if you go a little deeper, and a V13 if you go a little deeper. And so in these sessions where he's projecting in bad conditions, he's probably also sending a V10 and a V12 and, you know, these things that aren't the full line he wants to do. Just if you choose an arbitrary finish, he's also sending lots of hard things in the process. And I think we need to keep that in mind, too, that in bad conditions, even if we don't clip the chains on something... You know, you didn't clip the chains on your 13C project, but you might have just done a 13A in pretty bad conditions, uh, even though you didn't get points for it, whatever that. I love that. Yeah. What a what a great perspective, a, a mental, tactical perspective and, and a takeaway for all of us. If you're, you know, maybe you're trying to climb 11B, you don't quite get to the chains, fine, but maybe you climbed a 10D or an 11A. I love it. That's great. It, that that scratches the human itch to want to check things off of lists. And um, it's not that you didn't send, it's that you just checked maybe a, a bit of a different grade off the list that day. We love the the check boxes. We love them. You know, I, when I was listening to Maisa's episode, uh, she talked a little about she liked not knowing the grade. Um, she just looked for like mm. something that gave her confidence. Like this looks like my style. and And I loved that. But I would also say, can we reframe what the grade means? You know, none of us fucking know what grades mean. I don't have the first clue. So, so we should stop giving them so much power. And can we reframe that? Can we look at like long-term projects differently? You know, a sport climb ends in a totally arbitrary place, right? Um, somebody just put chains there. So that's where it ends. <laughs> right. What if they had what if they had put chains a bolt earlier or a bolt length higher? You know, then it's a different route. So the fact that we've decided that clipping chains is the most important part of this is a little strange. And if we can learn to celebrate the high points, the low points, the links the same way that we do clipping the chains on something, then it becomes easier to like dedicate time to these these long-term things and still feel like you're checking some boxes. 
Yeah, I love opening up this can of worms on grading. Let's let's keep going along this. First, let's actually let's hear from Maiza because you brought that up and and she had, I think, a very interesting accidental experience with this. One and a half years into climbing, I sent my first 512A outside thinking it was a 10D because I hadn't even climbed 510 on lead. <laughs> I just looked at it and I'm like, oh, look at this. It's my style. It's steep. And I'm not going to like be super afraid of falling because that was the biggest barrier, right? And so, right. so I did it. Lauren is like 12A and was over the moon. And what I did yeah. the next two seasons, dedicated myself into climbing 511s clean because I hadn't, I, I didn't have that under my belt, right? I just love that story. She climbed 12A before she climbed any 11s. Uh, because she didn't look at the grade, she looked at the route. And while most of us, when we're at the gym or we're going to a crag, we're going to be aware of what the grade or the route is, what can we learn from this? Because gra grades can be motivating, right? But they also can hold us back. We might look at a grade and say, oh, I'm not ready for that when, hell, maybe we are. Yeah. I think, I mean, what a cool opportunity for her because it points out, it really highlights, like, I'm giving this these big grades a lot of power over what I what I put my energy mm -hmm. into and I think so many of us do that I think you're exactly right you know we use them not only to you know to sort of guide us but also to hold us back that's too hard because it's got this number attached to it and I think if you're you know you can go in the gym and you can see examples of things that are graded wildly low that feel impossible to you and gr things that are graded wildly high that you can just float up. Um, we see that all the time and it's really not that much different outside. Mm -hmm. The way you compensate to make a climb happen might be the way this climb goes. And, and in that case, it's going to feel really easy for you. So I like grades as a, a guide but don't let them trick you into not trying. I think you you have to work up the courage and you have to practice working up the courage of getting on something hard every once in a while that seems like it might be above your head. Worst case scenario, you learn that you're not quite up to that test yet and it gives you an idea of what you need in order to get there. And that can be really motivating if you let it be. The place where I think people have the most trouble is in a grade where they might be able to do it, but then they might not do it. And that's a scary thing. It's easier to get on something really hard, I think. It's really scary to get on something you should be able to do, but you might hmm. not. And I think we just have to practice that courage. Um, I don't know that there's another way around that, but I do think it's a thing we can practice and, and we can take parts of our season, parts of our day, our day, parts of our climbing career, whatever, and work on those specific things. You know, I'm scared of 512 face roots. So one day this month, I'm getting on 512 mm -hmm. face roots, you know, just to see where I stand. And I'm not going out there with the intention of I'm clipping chains. It's more... I want to see where I stand. I want to engage with this. I want to interrogate this. And I want to have it highlight what the hell I'm missing. You know, and if you go into it with that mindset, then the grade 
melts away and it doesn't mean anything. It just becomes this this learning experience that that's really valuable. Yes, love. Oh, this is great. Some of this, of course, starts to push into the mental game a little bit. And uh, we're going to be talking with Laura Severin next uh, episode about a lot of this, I think. Ego, self-worth, where we fit within the community, these these primal emotions and instincts and fear and things that come up when we're pegging our our ego and our self-worth to our performance. Um, but tactically speaking, I think you bring up something that really goes hand in hand with what that conversation will cover, which is just this concept of that growth mindset of getting out there and saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into a style that isn't, you know, quote unquote, a strength of mine to see where I stand and to get better as a person, as well as a climber, of course, but, but better as a person, as a human. I love that. So um, good. I, I want to keep talking about this a little bit because I, I'd like to get your, your insight here on where the stopping point for that might be. Um, like, like what grade is too high? At what point should I, as a, you know, mid 512 climber, not get on something. I don't think there is a place. Um, All right. Pure imagination. Here I come. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, do you think the first Um, four bolts of that are like low 12? So actually that might be a good one uh, to to try. Yeah. I think it could, you know, it could be really valuable to just go up with a stick clip one day and climb those first few bolts and then stick clip your way through the rest of it and just feel the holds, try some moves on top rope. I wouldn't like post up under it for a month and try to project it, <laughs> but but going up there and trying to wrap your head around, this is possible. Lots of people have done this, and someday I might be able to do this. What are the things I need in order to do that? And if you can take your brain out of the like just going straight to I need finger strength, I need pulling strength, you know, I, I need these things. Start to notice, you know, be really aware of what's happening in your climbing. Am I scared because the moves are hard? Am I not trusting the feet because they're smaller? Uh, Am I having a hard time pulling the trigger on big dynamic moves when I don't know what the hold I'm going to is like? You know, these are problems that start to creep into your climbing as, as you get climbing harder and harder, closer to whatever's really hard for you at the time. And those are the things that are really going to matter outside. And those are the things that are hard to transition from the gym to outside. So they'll get highlighted when you try something really hard for you. And, and then you can go, okay, that's definitely something that I should put some intention into for the next however long. Cool. Very cool experiment. I don't think there's a limit. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, why, why would there be, right? If you can safely get on something, if you can feel it and try it and it gets you psyched and identifies some opportunities, why not? I, I think that's great. And maybe that's a good way for us to segue a little bit into now the process and and the tactics around project optimization, in a sense, um, with with regard to working on something that is very, very hard and at your limit and you're you're spending quite a bit of time there. How can we tactically stay fresh and stay psyched on it? And Allison Vest comes to mind because I think she brought some uh, not only interesting perspective, but also some some very useful tips. If I fall actually trying and giving a good effort, I found like walking away is helpful. Like whether you're like going to look at a different boulder or like just, I don't know, 
you got to pee or something and you like just like leave the boulder and come back. So you're actually you're like taking your shoes all the way off, putting your other shoes all the way back on and then going somewhere and coming back. That usually is a good reset for me. Uh, Ryan, when I I don't want you to imagine this at all, but I was listening to this episode when I was in the shower and I was I was literally cheering when I heard her saying this. <laughs> That's great. Um, because I, th- I think this is so important. And there, there are some other things you can do as well. You know, I love take your shoes off. That's number one. You should absolutely do that. Going for a walk is amazing. It, the way that it can reset you. A couple of other things I don't think she mentioned that, that I find really important are, number one, you know, go brush everybody else's holds if you're bouldering. Mm. You know, be the brush guy for a while. Um, be the group photographer for a while. You know, take take some photos. I, I, I find that trying to take good climbing photos can be really valuable for starting to, like, learn the rhythm and the, the flow of, of hard climbing because you're having to anticipate body positions and anticipate uh, facial expressions, uh, things like that. So anything you can do to force a break because we're all out there climbing because we fucking love it. Right. So of course you want to just jump on and try again. And you want to, if you're bouldering, you want to keep your shoes on. You just want to keep trying, you know, rapid fire attempts. But if you take your shoes off, if you get engaged in these other things, go for a walk, go look at other boulders, go check out future projects, you know, Um, if there's a group in the boulder field that, you know, go talk to them for a little while. Bring your phone, be the photographer, brush holds. I think all of these things are so valuable to force you to take a break, and lots of people need that. I'm very guilty of not taking my shoes off, and I'll realize I've been at this boulder for 45 minutes and have not taken my shoes off, have not taken a break. I'm an idiot. And and so just tactically speaking, there is the benefit, Chris, where you're just giving your body the time that it needs to rest and recover your your energy systems your finger flexors this kind of thing is it mental i'm not looking at this project i'm fucking walking away from this damn thing so i can come back and be psyched on it in a little bit where are the the best benefits coming from do you think yeah i well i definitely think there's a physical benefit to forcing yourself to rest no question but for my money the biggest benefit comes from taking the emotional break trying really hard on a project whether it's a boulder or a route is really mentally and emotionally demanding and you know if if you're fighting with your significant other your partner whatever you don't want to go from one fight right into the next fight you know we've all got fights we want to pick but we need to spread those out or our lives are going to get miserable and it's the same thing with with projecting. If you've just given a really hard burn or if you've just been frustrated by a move, anything that's taxing you emotionally, it's so much better to just stop, step away for a few minutes, come back once you've cleared your head a little bit, the frustration is gone, and you're ready to give another really great effort. There are going to be boulders, roots, whatever, that you're just falling off a frustrating move that's not super physically demanding. You're just not finding the position, you know? You may not need to physically rest, 
but you're going to need that mental break. And it's going to flip the other way as well. Sometimes you know exactly what to do, and for some reason you're just not physically connecting with it. But you're getting really close, and that means you're getting tired. So you're going to need that physical break more than the mental. Either way, it's going to help reset both things. So it's a really valuable part of, of a tactical assault on something. Yeah. Yeah, I dig that. And I think in my experience, at least, and this is fairly limited, I'm pretty much a noob when it comes to bouldering because I just I hate taking ground falls. So I'm always just prefer to have a rope on. But I've been trying to get into bouldering more often because I think that's where my training would benefit the most and my, my sport climbing as well. But I, I'm far more likely, it seems, to rest not nearly long enough between boulder attempts than I am between sport attempts typically because you're lowering off and somebody else is tying in and you're going to belay mm -hmm. them and you know there's some forced rest built in there whereas if you're psyched on a boulder and you're i was just at the craft boulders recently and you know there's a group sitting around and so you rest a little bit while other people take turns but i never took my shoes off and i was just like psyched and i just kept wanting to try and all of a sudden you know I'd only been at the boulders for an hour and I was done for the day, you know, like yeah. I was freaking <laughs> yeah, spent. Totally. So there's something about bouldering where like you almost have to force yourself away from that or or it'll just suck you back in, you know? Yeah. And somewhere like craft, you know, if, if you're visiting a boulder field like that, it's so easy to just take a walk and go look at these other boulders, these really hard projects that you may never climb, but are cool to look mm -hmm. at or, you know, the really... The really famous boulders that are in the boulder field, you know, take a hike to the back and check out some of those or whatever it is. It, it's, it's so valuable to find a reason to, to go and take that walk. And, and I'll, I'll just add one thing here that you sort of popped into my head. That's the flip side of this. If you're a person who's relatively new to sport climbing and you're getting, you're getting anxious about the amount of time it takes you to go up a route because you don't want the people on the ground to have to wait so long, take all the time you need. Those people on the ground probably need more rest mm. than they think they do. Um, you know, there are going to be cases where if you're cutting in line on a, on a bunch of people who are trying to red point and then you take an hour on the thing, that could be a problem, you know. But by and large, if, if you're next up and it's your go, take all the time you want, you're probably doing those people a favor. Oh God, we do need more rest. And I like that you brought up that that beginner aspect or or the newer outdoor climber, because I do think that the crag can be intimidating in a sense, especially if you're in an area where it's popular and people are lined up. And yeah, I mean, I've felt that for sure. You get on something and you're trying to work out a section, you start to get in your head. And so you don't rest long enough, maybe between attempts, if you're if you're hanging out a bolt because you're just really self-conscious of the people down there. And I agree with you. I think by and large, some there's some you know exceptions to the rule here, but by and large, if you've been waiting to get on your climb, you take your time on that climb and everybody else is just going to be that much stronger for it. So thank you for bringing up that aspect of it. And before we shift, Chris, to wrapping up and, and getting into application for what all of this means for all of us listeners, uh, we've covered a ton of climbers on this chat. I love it. But I wanted to check with you before we do move on, if if there's anybody that uh, you noted in season two here um, that that brought some tactical insights and struggles or breakthroughs 
that we haven't talked about yet in, in this chat? You know, the one I would really love to just talk about really briefly is uh, Melina. She talks about, she sort of contradicts herself while she's talking, which I, I really kind of loved because when she first said it, um, I shook my head and was like, no, that's not true because she's talking about the, comp, the new comp style that's diverging from outdoor climbing. Yeah, let's hear what she had to say on that real quick. It almost feels like parkour nowadays, which is weird and cool, and I like it a lot. I think that it's something that I haven't always been the best at, um, but I've put a lot of work into it, especially recently. And the sport is changing, for sure. It's really diverging, I think, from what you see on like rocks, like real rocks, for example. But I think that it, even though it's diverging, I think it is so cool if you kind of treat it as its own thing. Yeah, and when she says it, you know, she goes on to keep talking, but then sort of circles back around and she's like, but these things are teaching us, you know, balance and uh, body awareness and problem solving and belief. And that's what rock climbing is. That's what all rock climbing is. So I think taking those big global ideas away from comp climbing, you know, engaging in those comp boulders. I think every climber who wants to be a good climber should go into the gym as often as possible and try those comp no. boulders. I wish I had more around Don't me. make me do it. No, I'm Chris. Sorry, no, <laughs> don't make me do it. I'm so bad at them. God, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, but they make us more adaptable. Like mm. they improve our problem solving skills. And honestly, if you go look at like, I think it was Masters of Stone 1, you know, this old video, there's a whole section where they're doing like run and jumps and paddle dinos and all of these things on outdoor no boulders. Kidding. It's been a thing for a long time. Yeah. We just, because it doesn't look exactly like it, we're missing these big themes that are heavily in play. When I talked to John Sherman years ago on the Power Company podcast, he told me that when he was first developing in Waco, he walked past all of these boulders that became these compression climbing classics because there were no holds mm -hmm. on them. And he understood holds in a specific way and understood climbing in a specific way and had no paradigm for what compression climbing was going to be. So he didn't see those boulders at all. And now what we're seeing happen is these comp kids are going outside and they're finding new beta. You know, they see different opportunities when they see a hold configuration than what we see because they're like, oh, I could jump for this, paddle off of it and get to that. And then I've just skipped the entire crux of this boulder. Um, so I'm just going to do it that way. And, and that's happening more and more and more. And I suspect it's it's just going to keep happening, that that these comp kids are going to revolutionize outdoor climbing as we know it. Ugh. I I think Melina knows that and she's leaning toward it, even though she's sort of echoing this common perception that comp boulders are nothing like outdoor climbing. Damn it. Now you have me psyched on this comp style climb. I mean, literally it, the, the switch just flipped just like that because I do, I do see what you're saying there. I mean, there's, you're already seeing it. You're already seeing these, these young crushers who are coming from the competition world, whether it's on uh, boulders or on sport routes where they're just bringing a new level of kind of dynamic uh, movement and body awareness and the way they use their feet. Uh, like it's really, it's really fascinating. It's, almost seems as revolutionary in yeah. a sense of when Chris Sharma kind of busted onto the, the scene and was just like, 
doing his dynamic style orangutan swinging from hold Absolutely. to hold and like all these you know french guys in their spandex were like no everything must be static and yeah maybe maybe we're on the precipice of a big revolution in that sense all over again yeah i i really think we are i mean every single week i see a video on instagram that's somebody fi- who's found different beta that looks a lot like a comp boulder on some classic boulder somewhere that's so rad. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to continue to look to the new guard here because, shit, I could I could use some paddle dinos to skip crux sections on some of the climbs I'm doing. I would love to skip some thin crimps and just get right to the jugs. I am terrible at thin crimps. So that's that's a really cool perspective, man. I like that a lot. And now I want us to shift towards application. And of course, we've been doing that this this whole time. You You've done such an incredible job taking the struggles and the breakthroughs of these elite climbers from season two and um, distilling it in a way that I think is incredibly applicable to all of us who are listening right now. But sometimes there's things that the pros struggle with or more so that the pros don't struggle with that weekend warriors and amateur climbers uh, do, right? Something that the pros have just sorted out and a lot of us haven't quite gotten to that point yet. So what comes to mind there? Anything jump out? Yeah, I do think that one thing the best climbers have totally dialed in and don't have to think about at all are the like hard skills, the hard tactics, the like making sure their stuff is packed, making sure they have snacks, um, and they understand the sequence of projecting things like um, moves and links. And, you know, they have that checklist already figured out. And they understand the flow of a good day and how to be a good partner to facilitate what that good day looks like. So they've got all those hard skills kind of dialed in. They can anticipate the next steps pretty regularly. And that leaves more room for them to be considering the intricacies and the subtleties. And it makes those things even more valuable. So... The pros are really thinking about these things that can give them a 1% edge. Yeah, basically those skills that are developed over, you know, as we've talked about, the pros are climbing outside a hell of a lot more days than most of us have the advantage of being able to do. And so a lot of those hard skills, those hard tactical skills are just dialed in because you see other people doing things really well or efficiently or, hey, it's super smart how you pack your bag or your lunch even, these kinds of things. So what jumps out to you for, for those of us that probably have some opportunity to improve all of the things that happen between when we wake up and when we tie in or when we pull onto a block? Um, and also, I guess, things that are kind of happening throughout the day that us weekend warriors could potentially improve upon. I think it all comes down to watching, being really aware of what's going on throughout a day and understanding the flow of those days and making sure that you're not the bad partner, you know, um, be a good partner, be a facilitator. Uh, when someone unties from their route and they're off changing their shoes, you should be the one pulling their rope and moving the rope to the next route. Um, you know, and vice versa. If you just got lowered down, don't sit on the rope bag to take your shoes off, move away so that person can pull the rope down. You know, it, it's like that we just have to be facilitating that. And you can do that by just watching, by just being aware. Notice where you get frustrated that things aren't happening and make sure that you're not being that person as well. 
And if you ever forget something, make it a habit. Turn it into a habit. You're not going to forget your harness. You've got a bag packed that's to go to the gym during the week, and then you've got a different bag packed that's to go outdoor climbing. Mm-hmm. You know, that that $70 for a second harness that you're going to take outside instead of into the gym and then mix up your bags is going to be worth it when you forget your harness on the day that you were sure you were going to send your project. <laughs> oh, man. Have I been there? That is, uh, that's some great practical advice right there, actually. A harness, a harness <laughs> in every bag. They don't cost that much, guys. I love it, Chris. Well, let's, let's talk about you for the last few minutes that we have here of your time. I, I want to hear what's going on with your climbing, what your goals are coming up here. I've been following along with the Comeback Series, and I'm really excited for, for some sport climbing Chris Hampton to rise like a phoenix from the ashes. But, you know, you're a new dad. You've got 422 podcasts at last count. Approximately. You've got a business. Power Company is just fantastic. There's so much happening. What, what are you most psyched on, and, and what does this year look like for you? Man, um, I'm most psyched on the fact that I get to be a stay-at-home dad. Like I've built this this business that works mostly online, and it's really special for me to get to be with Harper every day, all day, as much time as I want to. So fucking special, and and I know not you know not everybody gets that opportunity, so I'm not taking it lightly. Um, really soaking in those moments. Uh, it was not the opportunity I had with my first daughter, who was 25 years ago. Um, so I'm really soaking it in this time. I love it. And I'm just really, I'm digging back into sport climbing. You know, I've been bouldering for several years, and and I'm excited to reframe sport climbing. Like coming from the red, which is one of the best sport climbing areas on the on earth, um, and now in I'm spending some time in Sinks Canyon, which frankly is just not as pleasant as climbing in the red. And I'm learning how to love it. And I'm right now, I'm just really digging into the what are the things that are holding me back while I'm climbing that I can be aware of, like trusting small, polished little feet or positions I'm not used to because I'm, I'm not climbing this style very often. And Learning how to deal with pump again is a thing I haven't had to do in a long time, but it's feeling really exciting to get pumped and to still have 40 feet of climbing to go and just have to work through that mentally. It's a thing I haven't done in a long time, and and that's what I love doing the most is just leaning into what I'm bad at at the moment. You know, I, I could um, recommend, uh, if, if you need a little help in that area, this, this great program called Red River Pump Prep with Drew Mack. Uh, it's, a, it's a power company program. Uh, you should you should check that out. Drew's a pretty good coach when it comes to pump prep. Yeah, totally. I've actually been thinking about Drew a lot because he's just leaned into it. Like he's made it his brand to be to be the endurance guy. And, and I was once of that ilk, and now I've gone the complete opposite way. So it, it, we're just total opposites now, which is really funny. That's great. Well, man, I'm super pumped to follow along with your journey on this. I love that you're sharing it along the way on Instagram, of course, in, in the Power Company podcast. I love working with you as as part of the Plug Tone Network and all the fantastic content that you're putting out on there as well. It's just been an absolute pleasure and honor having you on to, to talk us through tactics here. And when you get that trip planned to the red, 
hit me up. Let's go out. We'll get some burns in. Definitely will. Definitely will. And and just you know, I just want to say I'm really happy to have you as part of Plug Tone. I, I love what you're doing with this show. I love the ways that you give back. And this, like listening back to all of these episodes and really trying to analyze what these climbers are talking about was was really valuable and fun for me. So thanks for having me on. And that wraps up this incredible chat on tactics with a tactician master himself, Chris Hampton, a guy who's so dedicated to the craft that he's listening to podcasts in the shower. (laughs) What did you guys think of this analysis? I hope you enjoyed it. I loved every second of it. I'm going to listen to it again and again. There's so much to be gleaned from this look back on season two through the lens of tactics. Let us know if you have any questions or comments. You can find us on Instagram at Power Company Climbing and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now in a minute, I'm gonna share my takeaways, which was kind of hard to distill this time around because there was so much good content in here. But first, let's give some love to the brands who are making the struggle possible. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor here at The Struggle. Try Endurex to boost your all's endurance, stamina, and recovery between repeated efforts. I love this stuff, as I do all of their science-backed products. Look for them in Europe from the Epic TV online shop and in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 for 15% off at checkout. And y'all remember to look for the Sirocco helmet by Petzl when you stop into your local gear shop. It's the best of the best when it comes to protecting your melon and going above and beyond the standards for top and side protection. Access the inaccessible at Petzl.com. And the struggle's carbon neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation, who believe that no matter who you are, energy should be easy to access, affordable, and have a low impact on the natural world. Can I get a hell yeah to that? Pop on over to honoldfoundation.org to learn more about their projects and to support the important and impactful work that they're doing. Oh man, you guys, so many takeaways from this one. It's, it's really hard to boil it down here, but I am going to try. I think maybe the biggest concept from this entire chat here with Chris and this look back on season two is this idea of consistently and thoughtfully exploring every aspect of our climbing and our training through this tactical lens. This idea of um, like J-Stars fixing it before it's broken. What a fantastic mental crux that we can all be working on when we're not out climbing. How can we improve in every other area looking at it through this tactical lens? I love that. I also really love this idea of rethinking what grades mean and not letting them define us or limit us. I am gonna get on some parkour style problems at the gym, and then I'm gonna tie into a 14C at the red, as humbling as both of those exercises will be. I think I'm gonna learn something about myself and my climbing that I'm not seeing right now as I stay well within my comfort zone. And of course, I am going to be taking my shoes off between those attempts. Well, that clips the anchors on our second to last, our penultimate, if you will, episode of season two. What a labor of love these expert analysis episodes have been as we comb through hours and hours and hours of interviews to bring you the most beneficial and potent struggles and breakthroughs from the season. If this content is providing value to your climbing or, I don't know, maybe just making your commute that much more enjoyable. And of course, if you're in a position to be able to spare a few bucks each month, 
please consider popping over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to come aboard as a patron got some rad perks for you lots of like bonus episode type stuff stickers cancuzi and travel mugs all the cool swag just for patrons including uh some more pro clinics that are going to be coming up with the biggest names in the sport so if you think you're going to dig that come on over and give us a shot you can cancel anytime thank you i love you the Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. You guys, check out everything Plug Tone's putting out. It's really, really good. I'm so happy to be a part of this family. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. Struggle makes us stronger. See you next week. <laughs>